Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Children, you may go to Children's Church. We are going to do communion now. Uh, we've been trying to move that towards the beginning of the, uh, the sermon when we do that, so that when we release kids, if you have a child that goes to Children's Church but is a follower of Jesus, you'll have that opportunity to take communion with them and then send them on their way. So um, I had initially, because old habits die hard, written the sermon, written the communion in at the end of, of the sermon. And the connection is that uh, as we look at as we look at something that has to do with one of the harvest feasts, uh, it's good it's good for us to take different ways to remember all the ways that the Lord connects His work through the ceremonies He has, and one of them we're going to look at as a feast and uh, due to a harvest and the first fruits of the harvest and um, as as the Lord harvests souls, because we know He's the one that builds His church, it's by His power that these things are done. It's by Christ alone, not you and I alone, uh, that the Lord did a work to save people. He, uh, he came and He took our punishment in Himself, in our place, and, it's, and the Bible actually tells us why. And it's not because... Our God had some desperate need for relational connection with his people like you and I do with a dog or something. Or a cat. (laughs) It's something, uh, the reason for it is, is far greater than that actually. It actually has less to do with you maybe than you think and more to do with him. That the Lord desires to be glorified through his people and to win his people back to himself And then there is this relationship that our God desires with us. I just don't want us to mix those two up. And so when we come Sunday mornings and periodically, we we do it very uh, religiously in the sense that it's the first Sunday of every month. You don't have to guess. But for us, we consider that often. And the idea is that this brings us back, this focuses our minds yet again on the purpose why we're here. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the payment of sins and debt so that his people can be reconciled back to himself. In fact, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, the, Paul says it himself, that us meeting here would be in vain. But we believe in the resurrection of Christ and that our God is not dead. And so then we take communion here this morning. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we've placed our faith in Christ alone. We remember the work done in our place on the cross. So we're going to send first the bread out. And what, what I do as a practice, and you don't have to do this, is just a suggestion or maybe an encouragement. As the bread goes out, um, I would encourage you uh, to take a time uh, to just repent. I think that um, oftentimes we can go uh, a distance without taking a moment and repenting. 
in thinking about the things that we need forgiveness for. And in that, the idea is not that it squashes us as dust into the ground, but that it reminds us of a loving Savior. And for those of us who place our faith in Christ, that is the relationship we have with our Lord. So we're going to send the bread and go ahead and hang on to that. I'll read a text and then we will uh, take it together. chapter 22 we see this picture of Jesus and his disciples sitting down and he says he desires to eat the Passover before he suffers in verse 16 he says for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and he took the cup and when he had given thanks he said take this and divide it amongst yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And then verse 19 he says, And he took the bread, and when he gave, he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And together we remember his body on the cross. It actually goes on to speak of a cup that we're going to pass around to. And 
As that goes out, take one and hold on to it. We'll take it together again. Um, but as a practice I have that was passed down to me from my dad was to then take this time to just praise God and thank God for everything that he has done. And it could, we could be here for hours doing that. But for the next two minutes, I would encourage you to just take a moment and just praise and thank God for all that he has done and the work that is on the cross, that he's done on the cross so that then we can be saved, that the wrath can be satisfied and sin expiated because of his grace and mercy and love for us.
It goes on to compare the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to that, what is in this cup. In verse 20 it says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so together we take this. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for covenant after covenant. And yet, we are able to live in a covenant of grace because of what you've done on the cross and live in a reality where you've fulfilled these Old Testament scriptures and in ways that some weren't able to see. And yet we get to, and yet generations after us, in a day when you return in the same way that you left, some will be able to see that. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified this morning as we study your word. I realize my poverty and ability to, to speak well and to always get things right. And so I ask that you would take over my speech this morning and that we could study your word together. We love you. And in Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, as you know, we are in the book of Acts. We've asked some really good questions so far. One is, if they're waiting for the Spirit, does that mean that there was no Spirit before? And yet we go back to Genesis and we realize, in fact, the Spirit was very active in Genesis and very active in Exodus and very active in the Psalms and in David's life. And so we know that the Spirit is active and yet they're waiting for the Spirit. So there must be something unique and special about this. And we'll look more about what, what that is. Um, we realize also that um, as Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave them instructions to go and say, you are my witnesses. You've experienced, you've listened, you've watched it all, and I'll go tell the world about it. But wait, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. And it's better that the Holy Spirit come. And so they're waiting. And the time from Jesus' ascension to the, to the day of Pentecost um, it's approximately 10 days. So they're waiting 10 days. And what did they devote themselves to? Uniquely being together and praying. And so now they are waiting and the day of Pentecost arrives and we're going to see something very special. But what I'd like to do is ask a couple questions because people, I realize, we've got to make a decision, right? We're going to make a decision. Hey, am I going to snooze during this sermon or am I going to listen? Which one? And so what I, what I wanted to do is every now and again get questions ahead of time so you can make that decision, and it'll be a wise decision. Okay? So here's a couple of questions that I think uh, we're going to cover and answer, and, you can, and, and I think they're good questions. What is Pentecost? Isn't that a good question? There are a lot of people, so what I do is I test these questions on you. Some of you guys are probably like, dang it, Brian did ask me that. Uh, people don't know what Pentecost is. Literally, we think, some people think that Pentecost was created to explain the moment that the Holy Spirit fell upon his people. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at it. What does verse 4 mean? There's a speaking in tongues thing. What does that mean? Well, we're going to answer it. This is, this is the easier example to answer, but we're going to talk about that. Uh, thirdly, what happened at Pentecost? So what is Pentecost. What is the speaking in tongues thing? And overall, what happened at Pentecost? Those are good questions. Now, some of you maybe already know this stuff, and you're like, I'm going to snooze. Okay? Um, I would encourage you just to stay awake, but check this out. 
when I go through the week and I'm studying these things, uh, somebody once told me that like their perception of what I do is I went to this Bible college. They taught me everything that there is to know about who God is in the Bible. And then I retained that somehow. I don't know who you think I am. But then now I just regurgitate that each week. And it's very simple. I just read Acts. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Beep, bop, boop, bop, 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 control P, print, and it's over. And literally, I am learning somewhere between 30 and 80% of this stuff the week that I'm preparing it. And somebody would say, well, Brian, they didn't teach you what Pentecost was in school? I'm like, of course they did. I don't remember what it was, though, right? This is, I paid good money to forget that stuff. The speaking in tongues, of course. I remember sitting in class knowing that the professor says, next class, we're going to go through all the passages that talk about speaking in tongues. And we're going to look at them and determine what the speaking in tongues thing is. I'm like, sweet. And then in my mind, there's just like this blurry movement in front of me. And I don't remember any of it. So then I have to go and relearn it. And praise God that as I relearn it, I'm like, oh, that's right. And it all comes back. But these are good questions that I've tested on people here that we don't know the answers to this. And I think that we should. And I think that we're going to be able to tackle those. So we are in Acts chapter 2 now. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 13. Uh, we're going to start out with our first chunk of text. So if you want to turn to verse 1, we'll start there. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. That's important for two reasons. We'll do one now and another later. So what is Pentecost? The Pen Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. Isn't that interesting? The Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. In fact, Pentecost means 50th. So there, there you are. Learn something new every day. Passover was in mid-April, so that would put Pentecost about beginning of June. And this was uh, something that reoccurred each year for many, many, many years. So the Holy Spirit didn't create Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost in this moment we're going to read about. Um, couple interesting things that I believe are important because I think it reflects the sovereignty of God. Uh, this specific feast of Passover and Pentecost uh, was the arguably the most uh, attended of the feasts that they had. And uh, so I was like, oh, that's so interesting. The nerdy part of me is like, I got to figure out why was this the one that the majority of people went to? If there was a time you wanted to find Jerusalem full, this was one of those times. Why is it? Why is it Pentecost? And upon my investigation, I found this super spiritual truth that most likely it was because it was the best weather to travel. There it is. But the point still remains that is interesting that we'll come into a little bit later. That this, if you want to find Jerusalem packed with people, this is one of the days that would be packed with people. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more fuller Jerusalem than this moment here. I think that's interesting. Because as we see what happens on Pentecost, I think we'll see the sovereignty of God in this moment, choosing this moment for that. So, then we continue... Verse 2, 
Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave this ability. So as we look at the context, we have the disciples, the followers were all together, it says. In this upper room, we talked about what the upper room was. Some people talk about, oh, it must have been a really big upper room, 120 people. Here's what we know. The believers were together, and then, uh, then suddenly, and there's some things I'm going to say here that don't matter so much now, but will matter in like four weeks. So suddenly, meaning that it wasn't the disciples that called upon it and forced the hand of God in that moment, but suddenly, after 10 days of waiting, 10 days of prayer, 10 days of being together and focused and waiting upon the Lord, suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house they were sitting in. So there was a noise when the Holy Spirit came. There was this noise that they compared it to like a mighty windstorm. And it filled the place. So it wasn't like, oh, there's a rumbling in the corner over there. Let's investigate. It filled the place. In fact, we're going to see that people heard it and came. So there's this wind and this, uh, this noise. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Now, it wasn't actually fire. People didn't catch on fire, actually. It was like fire appeared and settled on each of them. And then it says, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability to do so. These sounds, these sights, were the work, the presence of the third person of the Trinitarian God, the Holy Spirit. Sounds of wind and the look of fire. So it's interesting, if you just pause there, and like that's interesting that that's how the Holy Spirit is described here. Wind and fire. Now, it wasn't necessarily wind, and it wasn't necessarily fire, though, right? Because there wasn't a tornado, and people didn't catch on fire. But this is what happens when we try to explain something that we have nothing else to compare it to, because there is no other Trinitarian God that interacts the way that He interacts. And so then they, throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, they're trying to find ways to, to describe who God is. Sometimes we see something called theophany, where, like, for instance, like the hand of God was over these people. Well, it wasn't really like God's hand coming out of the clouds and being like, now be still. That's called theophany. There's ways we try to explain things. And so we see a bit of that with the Holy Spirit as well. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to explain why wind and fire should not surprise us when the presence of God is visible among his people in some way. And so, uh, wind, for instance. The word for uh, spirit here is pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit. In fact, the only thing that determines which one of those words is used is the context itself. It's the same word, and I'm going to prove it to you later in at least one instance. 
There's 383 occurrences of this pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit, in the New Testament. When I say pneuma, there's a couple people I make eye contact with because I'm like, I think you are seeing a root word here that we have also. Pneumatic. You know what I mean? Pneumatic tools. I don't know if you've ever used a torque wrench, not a torque wrench, impact wrench. Let me explain what this is. If you've ever tried to take a bolt and loosen it, and you suspected you were going to have no more knuckles when you were done with it, I'm going to introduce you to something. It's called an impact driver or impact, where you put it on there and there's a machine that typically by air, when you go to this store, it goes, you know what I'm talking about? It's almost like watching a miracle right in front of yourself. Instead of reefing on this thing, busting teeth and busting knuckles on thing and breaking wrenches and breaking sockets, you put this thing on there and by the power of air, it will take that bolt off easily. There are plenty of other pneumatic uh, tools that we have, but pneumatic tool is a tool powered by air. And so that's where we get that word actually, pneuma. I mean, pneumatic. We get it from that uh, root of pneuma. Wind and breath goes back as far as Genesis, and there's a Hebrew word named Ra. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see it. It is when the breath of God gives life by the Spirit. So as far back as Genesis, we see this thing about, about air, wind, spirit being used, this word being used to describe essentially the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, pneumatology is the study of, we would say, the Holy Spirit. So we have wind, breath, air, this being used all the way back in Genesis. Let's look at, I want to look at um, a section of text in John, chapter 3, verses eight, 5 through 8. I put it on the screen so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But let's read this. I'm going to summarize the first part and then I'll, and I'll start in verse 4 or 5 here. There's a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish religious leader. He was a Pharisee. And there's this one uh, uh, night that Nicodemus comes kind of sneaking in to have a conversation uh, with Jesus. And uh, he asks Jesus this, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And then Jesus, knowing what he's getting at, replies with this, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's a little bit of Nicodemus in all of us, okay? Now, I'm pretty black and white myself. Um, I'm not the most intelligent person you will ever meet. Uh, Nicodemus says something that I can identify with. He asks this question, which is a very good question, considering what Jesus had just said. In verse 4, he goes, What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? So that's the question he asks Jesus Christ. And I can look back and I'm like, man, I'm glad that wasn't me. I can totally imagine slipping up saying something stupid like that. But he asks a good question because in what other context would he have than to think like that, right? So he's like, how can I be born again? That's his question. How can I be born again? And Jesus replied with this. This is what's up on the screen. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Spirit, there's that word pneuma. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit, pneuma, gives birth to pneuma life. 
So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows, and there's that wind again, right? There is a little bit of a wordplay happening here. There's this wind, pneuma, blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Let me highlight a couple things. Check this baby out. Spirit, pneuma, 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 wind, pneuma, pneuma. There's this connection between wind, air, breath, and the Spirit from Old Testament to New Testament. And yet, obviously, we see it again at Pentecost. It's a connection that has been made as people have desperately tried to pass on these encounters with God. Let's talk about fire for a second. Fire was a symbol of God's presence throughout the Bible. Now, this one might be a little bit easier. Some of us might be like, okay, fire being associated with the presence of God. Where can, I, where can we get that? Don't say it out loud because it can get awkward. But just think about it. If you had to guess, are some of us going back to uh, Genesis already? Exodus? All right, Moses in the burning bush, right? It's a bush that's on fire. It's not consuming the tree. And we're like, oh, it's the presence of God. And it's described as fire. Exodus chapter 3. A pillar of fire leads the Israelites by night. That's Exodus 13 and 14. Um, The consuming fire on Mount Sinai. That's Exodus chapter 24 verse 17. In Hebrews chapter 12, God is called the all-consuming fire. Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, John the Baptist says that he will baptize with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's this connection of wind with the presence of God and fire with the presence of God. And then we see, in a sense, uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit come on Pentecost and guess what it's associated with? Wind and fire. So my point is to bring out that that should be normal. That shouldn't be catch us completely off guard as we read our Bible and know our Bible. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, there's a word used to actually describe the work of God. Dunamis. Now, the connection's a little more difficult, but we did, in a, in, a, in a way, get our word for dynamite from that Greek word, dunamis, which describes the work of the Holy Spirit. So, essentially, when we were trying to find out what's a good word to use, that when we shove this stick of powder into this rock... It has enough power to blow the whole rock face off. What's a good word to describe that power? And they use the same word, or we get our word from the root word that describes the work, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's cool. Moving on. All right. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So this is what's happening. We just described it. We got an image of what's going on. We have the context for it. And then now let's listen to this. At that time, there were, there were, devout, there were de- devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. So there's Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem at this time. When they heard the loud noise, right? We just talked about what that noise was. Everyone came running and they were bewildered for what? Listen, they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by the believers, They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, so proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. 
And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about what? The wonderful things God has done. Let's highlight a couple things. One of the questions we want to ask ourselves is what is the speaking in tongues thing? In this context. There's going to be other contexts that we're going to have to grapple with. This one, we say, what is the speaking in tongues? What's happening here? Let me explain it this way. We'll walk through the text. At this time, there are people that speak various languages all in the same location, as if we were all at the Amateur County Fairgrounds, but yet there were people that were speaking various languages from around the world right here among us. And the Holy Spirit has came upon these believers, and they, by the power of the Spirit, they are now able to speak, and everyone there is hearing them in their own languages. And you're like, wait a second, Brian, how do we know that? Don't jump to conclusions, Campbell. Well, let's just read the Bible. So I said this last service, I don't know if it's smart to say it, I think it's all right. Don't get distracted by stupid things. You know, like, let's just read the Bible and let our minds and our hearts and what we believe be transformed by what the Bible says. So here, there's no reason to be confused or distracted by silly things. It says this, when they heard the loud noises, everybody comes running and these people speak different languages and they were bewildered. Bewildered, why? To hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Huh. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. Why are they, why are they so uh, in disbelief? These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And then they right here, they go and explain all the different places they come and the various languages that would be there. And then they go on to explain furthermore, for the fourth time, why they're so amazed. What's happening? What is this speaking in tongues? And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. So what's happening here? It's very clear. This passage, there's not debate around it. We can learn what God is doing here. And let me take, a, take our, our, our eyes off of the distraction of what the speaking in tongues is and focus maybe more so on what this really is. What's really happening here is the Holy Spirit comes upon these men. There's these sounds. And time-wise, it is around the time that Jerusalem is going to be most populated. Pause. What was the mission? The mission was, go and tell the world about who I am. And so then, essentially what happens is, God brings the world, to some degree, to Jerusalem for them to start this mission. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and gives them the ability to speak in the languages of everybody there so they can all hear the good news. And we'd ask, what was said then? All the wonderful things that God has done. Let's learn about our God for a second. He says... I'm going to give you a gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to tell the world about all the wonderful things God has done. I'm going to bring these people to you. I'm going to give you this really populated area. And I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the first things I'm going to do is every single person there is going to hear about all the wonderful things I have done. And what it does is it refocuses many of the Psalms and stuff and even our minds today in 2022 about what's really important. 
This passage is not about disciples or apostles demanding God to act on their, on their behalf. It's not about necessarily even the power that they can do that. It's that God has the power to do that through his people. Also, what we learn about our God is what he's most concerned about is the world knowing about all the wonderful things that God has done. So what do we take away from this, this passage? Well, let's see the two responses they got. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Two responses. Pretty common. I don't know if we've ever been preaching and somebody's like, dude, that guy's drunk. But the other stuff makes sense though, right? There are going to be people that when they hear about all the good things God has done, if you are somebody who shares your faith, you have gotten this. They're amazed and perplexed. And then we go to the end of the Great Commission where it says, teach them all the commands that I've taught and have them obey them. Right? They're amazed and perplexed. The other thing we see is being ridiculed. Some things just never change. And in fact, I believe that this is what we're prepared for throughout Scripture. These two types of responses. And the extremes of both of them. We cannot leave this section of text and leave it thinking that the point of this is that something has to do with us and our gifts and our power with God and demanding certain things and, and we go down this trail. Don't get distracted with stupid things. Read the Bible. And what does it teach us? It teaches that God put them on a mission and God did the work of bringing the people there and God did the work of the Holy Spirit and then God did the work of empowering them to speak in these different languages and then God, uh, God did the work to draw Thousands of people are going to come to faith in the moments preceding this. Why? It's not because you and I are really not all that important. It's because God is good and God is great. And we're saved by Christ alone. And those are the wonderful things that God has done. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a brilliant, beautiful eye-widening, jaw-dropping moment we're able to look at here. Your Holy Spirit comes and falls upon these believers and we see the power of you getting your work done and building your church the way that you promised you would. And it just causes us to hopefully feel that we are in desperate need of you. We're in desperate need of the Spirit, as Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 says. We realize this world, this book, this life is all about you. And yet, in the midst of that, there's a truth in there that you love us. That you, that you God of the universe, sacrifice for us. And all the while, affirm and confirm, we don't deserve it. It's by grace and mercy, because of your love. We take communion and remember that. We study your sermon and we can look at the moment of Pentecost and see your great work and your power and your will being being done because you are God and we are not. God, change our lives week after week after week. And I pray that as we study your word, we would be transformed by the power of your word, not by eloquent speaking, not by the friends that brought us, not by partaking in communion or eating a donut in between services, but because of your power, your work through the Holy Spirit. We love you, and in Jesus Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.